Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. It's hard to comprehend. I would really like to know who did it and why they did it. Who did it and why? Their questions sparked from tragedy. Lindy Sue Beekler was stabbed 19 times inside of her Millersville apartment on December 5th, 1975. Uh, Lindy's family, including her husband, um, have grieved for decades without an answer. Questions that often go unanswered, if they're ever answered at all. This has been a long and difficult case for everybody, 46 and a half years. This, this tragedy that happened to her was not, was not supposed to happen to her. After 25 years, investigators make an arrest in the murder of Christy Mirak. But now, new technology is cracking cold cases. This case was solved with the use of DNA, and specifically DNA genealogy. Using a unique method that can analyze DNA from the smallest of samples, Parabon creates a genetic genealogy report that's used to find possible familial links through these databases. So how does it work? And whose DNA do they use to track criminals down? The fact is that we got somebody in custody uh, is a kind of a relief. It's kind of a bittersweet day for us. From the crime scene to the courtroom, right now we're bringing the experts to you. Hear firsthand how advances in DNA technology are changing the game. Parabon was really our last shot, and uh, little did we know at the time that it's turned out to be uh, our best. This is Unsolved in PA. Hi, I'm Jessica Babb, an investigative reporter for CBS 21 News. As investigators comb through crime scenes, DNA evidence is extremely important. It's even more important when the leads dry up and a case goes cold. In those cases, DNA is often an investigator's only hope. Over the years, DNA technology and testing has changed dramatically. Advancements are giving investigators new tools, especially as they revisit old cases. In this week's episode of Unsolved in PA, I'm introducing you to Cece Moore, a genetic genealogist from Parabon Nanolabs. She's a DNA detective of sorts. She works closely with law enforcement, diving into DNA profiles, finding the missing clues to cold cases. Here's our conversation. First off, can you explain what your company, Parabon, does? Sure. Parabon is a DNA technology company, and part of the services includes investigative genetic genealogy. So we offer to help law enforcement identify violent criminals and Jane and John Doe's from their DNA using genetic genealogy techniques. Parabon also offers phenotyping, which is where they can predict what somebody looks like or what their traits are from their DNA. 
So they'll predict hair color, eye color, skin color, shape, face, that type of thing. Now, I'm not on that side of things. I am the chief genetic genealogist leading the genetic genealogy service. And so what do you do in that role? Well, I lead a team of three other genetic genealogists. Once the DNA has been processed into the format that we need for it to be compatible with genetic genealogy, that's when our part of the job takes over. So our scientists will work with the lab and format that file so it can be compared against the files that are in GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA, which are the two databases we're allowed to compare against. Once it's been uploaded there and a match list generates, that's when I take over and when my team start our work. I know DNA has been used for many, many decades in solving cases of all kinds, but I know there have been a lot of recent DNA breakthroughs. What are some of those breakthroughs that are now really changing the game and how DNA is used to solve crime? For decades, law enforcement has used DNA to try to identify violent criminals, but they have used a more limited genetic profile. They are typically using 20 genetic markers to compare against the law enforcement databases. And they're looking for an exact match. They're looking for that person to be a known offender who has already had their DNA placed in the system. What we're doing is a different type of genetic marker called SNPs, SNPs. And instead of just looking at a handful, we are looking at hundreds of thousands of genetic markers across the genome in order to expand that search to be able to find distant relatives. And so that is probably the biggest jump forward as far as using DNA in criminal investigations and to identify uh, Jane and John Doe's. But we've also seen a lot of advancements on being able to detect the smallest amounts of DNA, just tiny little bits of DNA that never would have been able to be found before are now being able to be detected and tested with the newer technologies that we're seeing. So there's a lot of advancements in this field that means that cases that used to be cold and unsolvable are now getting hot <laughs> and being solved. And so we're seeing a lot of cases, even that in 2018, we would have said that's not enough DNA or that DNA is too degraded or too mixed. That now today we have the technology to be able to test that DNA and create that profile. So how small of samples can you use with the DNA now as compared to even a few years ago? Well, believe it or not, we process a lot of touch DNA samples, and that can be just a few human cells. And it's amazing. I mean, I don't think anyone could have ever predicted, and certainly not when they were originally investigating the crimes that we're helping to solve now, that just this tiny, tiny little skin cell would be enough to identify the perpetrator or the Jane or John Doe. And so that is pretty exciting. The other thing is that mixtures. So with sexual assaults, you often see a mixture of the perpetrator's DNA and the, and the victim's DNA. And so our scientists have done a lot of work at what's called deconvolution, being able to extract out that victim's DNA and isolate the perpetrator's DNA. So there's been a lot of advancements in that area as well. Another area that we've seen advancements in is contamination. So if there are unidentified human remains out in the environment for years or decades, they can tend to have a lot of bacterial contamination. 
where the bacteria inserts its own DNA into that human's DNA. And we have to be able to extract out that bacteria's DNA to focus in on the human DNA. And so our scientists do a lot of work in that area as well. We've had a lot of success being able to identify people and give them their names back because of that work. With these advancements that have been made, what are some of the big cases that you all have been able to solve, um, whether across the country or even here in Pennsylvania? We've worked with agencies all across the United States and even in Canada. So there have been hundreds. Um, we've been able to help resolve over 260 cases now for law enforcement. And we've done a lot of work in Pennsylvania. In fact, the third case that I worked was the Christie Murak case. Let's pause for a moment. Who is Christy Murak? She was a 25-year-old girl who was having fun, had her career, and abruptly was just taken away for no reason. She is like a person that walks into the room and is so bubbly. I mean, she'll light up a room with just, uh, just a, sometimes the smile that she had on her face. On the morning of December 21st, 1992, Murak, a school teacher, was murdered in her East Lampeter Township apartment in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. My roommate and I, I was leaving for work at 7.15 and she had just been out walking the dog and we, she saw someone, I never saw the gentleman come out of his car and get into, um, head in toward the, into that apartment. Christy was brutally assaulted and killed inside her Lancaster County apartment. Her case was unsolved for 25 years. Police didn't make an arrest until 2018. We are announcing the arrest of Raymond Charles Rowe for the murder of Christy Murak from December 21st, 1992. They were able to observe him with a water bottle and connect him to uh, some gum that had been chewed, and they collected that. They were able to take the DNA from the crime scene and trace it to a relative of Raymond Rowe's. Prosecutors said Raymond Rowe's DNA matched what was found at the crime scene. He was also known as DJ Freeze and ran the popular entertainment company called Freeze Entertainment, which was used for weddings and other events all across central Pennsylvania. Raymond Rowe pleaded guilty to criminal homicide, three counts of rape, and two counts of involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, and was sentenced to life without parole, plus 60 to 120 years. During his case, Rowe stated that he was innocent and had been with Murak on the morning of her murder, but said they had consensual relations when they were together. He's behind bars right now at SCI Waymart. Here's Cece Moore again. Christy Murak was a beloved elementary school teacher, and she lived in Lancaster. She lived with roommates. And when she was getting ready to go to school one morning, in fact, she had all these Christmas presents she had wrapped for her students, uh, she was apparently carrying those out to her car and somebody pushed, must have pushed their way in and attacked her, ended up raping and murdering her. And it was devastating for the entire Lancaster community and of course, you know, her family and friends and her loved ones. And it took decades for that case to finally be solved. You know, that case went cold despite the best efforts of Lancaster law enforcement and the district attorney's office that ended up taking that case over. When we first started working the Christy Murat case, the only law enforcement database that was open to us to compare against was the smallest database called GEDmatch. 
And it had less than 1 million people in it. So the chances of getting a really strong match or strong matches were very, very small. But we were very fortunate in that case. And our top match was very strong and very promising. And then we had many, many other supporting matches to help determine who that individual was. From building the family trees, I was able to determine that the perpetrator was likely half Puerto Rican, and then he was primarily Northwest European on his mother's side. We are typically able to identify people with Northwest European ancestry much more easily. And that is because we have uh, more people in the database from that population group, and also the records are easier to access if their family has been in the United States for many, many generations. So I focused on that side of the tree, looking for somebody who had a child with a person of Puerto Rican ancestry. And I was able to very quickly zero in on a man called Raymond Rowe or DJ Freeze. Uh, my work is just a tip though. So I was not uh, pointing my finger at him saying he was Christie's killer, but I provided that lead to the Lancaster District Attorney's Office and uh, Craig Stedman, who was the district attorney at the time, and their team took it from there and did that full investigation to see if they had reason to consider him a person of interest in that crime and if they were able to find additional evidence tying him to that crime. They felt pretty confident about it, so they then had to follow him to try to get abandoned or surreptitious DNA. So you can't arrest someone based on genetic genealogy. They have to collect DNA and go back to that original traditional forensic profile, that STR profile that they created decades ago that is compared against the law enforcement database. They have to get that one-to-one -one match in order to charge someone with a crime. And so they were finally able to do that. It was not easy in this case. And they got that match and, you know, they reached out, let me know he is a match to that crime scene DNA. So the genetic genealogy had pointed in the right direction and led to the right person. But it's important to note, Cece Moore says through her work, she identified Raymond Rowe as a DNA contributor at the crime scene. Now, I say it that way because I'm not saying that somebody is guilty or that someone is a killer or rapist. My job is to identify who is the contributor of that DNA? And then law enforcement has to determine whether that means that person is their perpetrator or not. Um, so that was a really significant case for me very, very early on. Um, but with that case, I felt that Lindy Sue Beekler's case came along with it. Let's pause one more time. Lindy Sue Beekler was another big case. 19-year-old Lindy Sue Beekler was murdered in their Millersville apartment back in December of 1975. Reports state she was stabbed and fought back against her killer. The knife left in her neck. Physical evidence, including blood and semen, left behind by the killer. It's hard to comprehend, uh, you know, a love of your life being taken away that brutally. This case has been very emotional for many of our officers. Uh, they've, they've shed tears, they've had sleepless nights. 46 years after the brutal murder of Lindy Sue Beekler in Lancaster County, an arrest has been made in this case. David Sinopoli taken into custody Sunday morning. This case was solved with the use of DNA and specifically DNA genealogy. And quite honestly, without that, I don't know 
that we would have ever solved it. After extracting DNA from Beekler's underwear in 2019, genealogy narrowing down Sinopoli as a suspect. Old records indicating at one point Sinopoli lived in the same apartment complex and same building as Beekler. This is why we do what we do and it's very meaningful for us to be able to try to provide some sense of relief to the victim. David Sinopoli hasn't been convicted. As of now, his case is still working its way through court. Lindy Sue Beekler was murdered a couple decades before Christy Mirak, also in Lancaster. She was a newlywed and she had just gone grocery shopping and brought her groceries home. And her husband was not yet home from work. And she appears to have been carrying those in when somebody got into her apartment and raped and murdered her. And that case had been cold even longer. It was the 70s, so that was really old by the time I was able to work on it. Um, the Lanca Lancaster District Attorney's Office asked us to help with that case, I think the year after we worked on the Mirac case. But that case was different. We didn't have good matches. We didn't have any strong matches. So we had gotten pretty lucky in Christy Mirac's case, but we were not so lucky in Lindy's case. So I had to develop a novel approach. I was desperate to help identify Lindy Sue's killer as well. And so I just kept working on it for a couple of years, even with a very limited amount of data. And I was able to identify a very specific immigration pattern from a small town in South Italy to the Lancaster area. And fortunately, Pennsylvania has a lot of great records online, a lot of great, uh, unique record sets. And that includes the Pennsylvania compensation cards um, where men who fought in the war listed where they were born. And also the, um, I forget what it was called, but it was a club for men from Italy, I think Sons of Italy. And there is actually, the, the membership cards are actually in a collection digitized online. So I went through those and built all those family trees. And it's too long of a story, but I eventually zeroed in on one man as the potential DNA contributor, David Sinopoli. So you said so many things that I want to ask you about, um, but I think let's just start with the process of how this works. So you get a DNA sample and then what do you do with that next? So we have to go back to the original crime scene DNA. So we can't use that traditional STR profile that is the court admissible DNA evidence that they created likely, you know, decades ago in most of these cases. We have to have remaining biological evidence from that crime scene in order to be able to help. So if they've used up all the DNA evidence, then we aren't able to perform genetic genealogy unless they retest the items and are able to find additional DNA. And that is because we're doing a completely different type of DNA processing and testing. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We are looking at SNPs, 
instead of STR. So that's two different types of genetic markers. And instead of only testing a handful or 20 is what they're typically testing, we are testing about 800,000 genetic markers across the genome. So that means law enforcement will submit the crime scene DNA or the DNA from the unidentified human remains to the lab that we work with in order to create that profile. It's called a SNP profile, SNP. And so that then is the data that we work with to perform genetic genealogy. So if you tested at one of the big commercial DNA testing companies, like say Ancestry or 23andMe, you spit in that tube, you mailed it in. They're using the same type of DNA testing that we're now using for these law enforcement cases. The reason that we need to test it and look at these SNPs is because that's what those commercial DNA testing companies are doing. And it is those files that we will be comparing against. So we're not comparing directly against Ancestry or 23andMe, but the people in GEDmatch have typically tested at one of those two companies the majority of the time. Again, to be clear, Cece Moore says when she's doing the genetic genealogy and is looking for potential matches, she isn't using DNA submitted to the big DNA companies like Ancestry or 23andMe. She's pulling DNA data from different, smaller databases she's allowed to use. We'll have more on that in a bit, but it's important to keep in mind as we have this conversation. So we want our file to be compatible with those files, which means you want to be comparing like to like, the same type of genetic markers and hopefully the same exact genetic markers. So we try to test the same ones that are tested by those companies. Once we have that file and it's uploaded to the GEDmatch database that we're allowed to use, uh, it's compared against everyone that has opted into law enforcement matching. So GEDmatch now has about 1.8 million profiles, but only about a third have specifically opted in to allow law enforcement to compare against their DNA file for criminal cases. Everyone in the database can be compared against for unidentified human remains or Jane John Doe cases. Um, so for a case like Lindy's, we're only comparing against that subset of people in the database, which makes it obviously more difficult. What we're looking for are people that share long identical segments of DNA. So it's not single marker matching like you're looking for in the law enforcement databases. We're looking for people that'll have a long stretch of say ATCs and Gs that make up our DNA in a row. And the longer those segments are and the more plentiful they are, the more closely two people are related. And so when we have that comparison done against the law enforcement matching pool, we receive a list of people who share what we consider significant amounts of DNA with the unknown subject that we're researching. Now, significant for us might be 1%. So if you share about 1% of your DNA, you're very likely third cousins, which means you would share great, great grandparents. So the amount of DNA two people share allows us to predict, predict their likely relationship or relationships, because oftentimes there's multiple possibilities. And that tells us how far back we have to build in their family tree to try to find those common ancestors. So we can piece back together their tree little by little, piece by piece. And eventually we can reverse engineer their identity based on who their ancestors are, which we discover by learning who they share DNA with. So the vast majority of my work is building family trees. I really don't spend much time in the DNA. 
there's a big misconception that we're really digging into people's DNA. We don't have access to their raw DNA files or that DNA code. We are just getting a list of people who share DNA and they may be very, very distant relatives. So it sounds like it's really quite the process. Is there an automated system that helps facilitate that or are you doing all of this by hand? There is no automated system that does this work. So we are doing this manually. There are some tools that some genetic genealogists use to help group matches and try to help find common ancestors, but I don't use them. I find it it's more efficient for me to do it manually. And the main reason is because these matches very rarely have a family tree on the database. So people think, oh, we get this match list and the family trees just pop out at us. And it's not true. Only a minority of people have uploaded any family tree information for us. And so automation doesn't really do much because you have to manually build that family tree. You have to say, who is this match? Who are their parents? Who are their grandparents? Could they be adopted? Could they have a different father than what is showing in the in the records, in the public records? And so that takes a lot of work and a lot of experience to be able to navigate that. Talking about these genetic databases that you're utilizing to make these DNA genealogical matches, you mentioned that you're not using the Ancestry or the 23andMe databases, uh, but you're using this other alternative database that someone has to opt into. Right. So there are over 40 million people who have taken commercial DNA tests, and most of those are housed in the largest companies, Ancestry DNA, 23andMe, and a company called MyHeritage. Unfortunately, all three of those companies have terms of service that bar law enforcement's use. And that means we're limited to the two smallest databases. Those are Family Tree DNA and GEDmatch. GEDmatch has about 1.8 million profiles, but only about a third of those are opted into violent criminal law enforcement matching. Meaning if they check a box when they upload or afterwards, if they change their settings, then we can compare against them when we're trying to identify a murderer or rapist. If they are in the database uh, at all, we can compare against them for unidentified humans remains cases. So we can compare against about 1.8 million for the Jane and John Doe cases, but only about five or 600,000 for the violent criminal cases. So that is challenging. Then family tree DNA, has about 1.5 million profiles in it, and maybe about 90% are opted into law enforcement matching there. They have a different requirement, and that is if you don't want to be part of the law enforcement pool, you have to opt out. So at GEDmatch, you have to actively opt in. At Family Tree DNA, you have to actively opt out, which is why you see the difference in the opt-in, opt-out numbers. So we can compare against maybe 1.25 million there, Unfortunately, there's a large overlap between the two databases because they both accept free uploads, meaning if you tested at Ancestry or 23andMe, you could download your raw data and upload to both of those databases. So you can't just add the numbers together and say that's how many we have. Um, it is extremely challenging to identify the violent criminals. With using those databases, the opt-in and the opt-out, are there privacy concerns with that? I know some people might be hesitant to upload some of their data, concerned of how it may be used. Well, fortunately, 
you have the ability to opt out in both of those databases. So you could be in the database without being compared against for violent criminal cases. However, as I mentioned in GEDmatch, if you are in there, you could be used for unidentified human remains cases. And I think that is because Verigen that owns GEDmatch, um, I was told that they talked to some bioethicists who felt that giving a name back to a Jane or John Doe is very similar to an adoption or unknown parentage type case. And so that one requires a lower level of consent. But to be in the uh, comparisons against violent criminals, you have to actively check that box. So you know what you're doing. You're not going to end up in that database without your knowledge. So I like the fact that people are getting the opportunity to decide how their own DNA is used. A lot of people believe we're using Ancestry and 23andMe. In fact, a lot of people have reached out to me and said, I wanted to help you with your work. I want to help solve cases. So I tested at Ancestry. But they need to understand we don't have access to that. They would then have to download their raw data, upload it to GEDmatch and or Family Tree DNA, and opt into law enforcement matching. And it isn't the easiest process. You know, you do have to jump through some hoops and um, there's some consents you have to agree to when you download your raw data as well. They, the companies are really careful with protecting that data and privacy. In our conversation, Cece Moore and I talked a lot about privacy because it's important, especially when we're talking about something as unique as DNA. It really doesn't get more personal than that. As far as privacy, I do think it's important people understand we're not using those big databases. Those Ancestry and 23andMe are both valued at over a billion dollars, and they both have investors, and they both have a lot of interest in keeping law enforcement out of their database. They have both vowed to fight any law enforcement efforts to get into their databases. They feel that those databases were created for different purposes, not for solving crimes. And so they are very... Um, they're very strong in that stance. And so if law enforcement were ever to use that database, it would be a long journey to getting there. I can't say never, never say never, but I don't expect that law enforcement will be able to access either of those databases in the near future and probably not ever. I do think it's important that everyone follows the rules. You know, we don't have much legislation putting guardrails around the use of investigative genetic genealogy at this point. Anybody can claim they're an investigative genetic genealogist and offer their services to law enforcement. There's no degree that you can get in what I do. There is no licensing or accreditation. Yep, you heard that right. Since the technology is still pretty new, and in some ways it's kind of like the wild, wild west, Cece Moore says she's trying to help lay some groundwork. I recently helped to found a nonprofit to look at an accreditation process. Part of the reason we did that is because Maryland was the first state to pass a law about using investigative or forensic genetic genealogy, and they are going to require that the people doing this work are accredited or licensed. And there's no way to fulfill that requirement right now. So I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's important to make sure that the people doing this are experienced and skilled and also that they're following best practices. So I've been very involved in crafting legislation in Utah to put some guardrails around what we do. And we really just want to see codified into law or enshrined into law the best practices. 
investigative genetic genealogy is not going to lead to the wrong person being arrested. And that is because you can't arrest somebody based on that work. It's simply a lead generator or a tip. They have to get that one-to-one -one match with the court admissible forensic profile that is used for law enforcement, that STR profile that we talked about at the beginning. But it could waste resources. It could pull uh, innocent people into being looked at for a crime, not arrested, but looked at. So there are, I think there are significant privacy issues, but most of those stem from misconceptions and misunderstanding about what we do. I'm not spending a lot of time digging in anyone's DNA. I don't have access to their DNA code or their underlying DNA data. I'm getting that match list and predicting how close people are related or how distantly they're related most of the time based on that. Even though she isn't digging into DNA code, Cece Moore says she spends the majority of her time combing through public records. I don't have access to anything that the public doesn't have access to. I have no special law enforcement access. So I am using uh, traditional genealogical records like census records, birth records, death records. I'm also using newspaper archives. Obituaries are really important in what I do. But I also use social media significantly. So if people are really concerned about their genetic privacy, I would suggest to them that they should also look at what they and their family members are putting out there about themselves in social media. Because if, because your DNA is meaningless to me if I can't build your family tree. How long does it take to get a genealogical DNA match? So when you upload one of these files of an unknown person to GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA, it typically takes a couple of days for that to be compared against everyone in that law enforcement matching pool. And then we get a match list. So we get a match list pretty quickly. But to work through that match list and try to find that one person that is related to all of those top matches can take anywhere from 30 minutes to four years. It really just depends on the quality and quantity of that data that comes back in that match list. Certain population groups don't have nearly as much representation in these two databases, so it can be very difficult to identify someone from those population groups. For instance, in Lindy Sue Beekler's case, that suspect, that DNA contributor, uh, had full Italian ancestry. We have less Italians in the database than we do people whose families go back to the Mayflower, for instance. And so it is much easier for us to identify someone with deep roots in the U.S. than it is to identify someone who comes from recent immigrant roots. Or if they are an immigrant themselves, it's especially challenging. So it's really like finding the needle in a haystack. It certainly can be. It's, um, you know, some people say it's like... Uh, you know, putting puzzle pieces back together. And I use that analogy sometimes, but it's really more like a Sudoku puzzle because you have to find how everything fits right. But listen to this. Even though we've been talking about how genetic genealogy is used to investigate crimes and ID suspects that can lead to arrests and convictions, Cece Moore says they can also narrow down and eliminate people from being suspected of a crime in the first place. But the vast majority of our cases, even if we can't narrow it down to one person or a set of siblings, we can tell you who it isn't. It isn't anyone who doesn't have these very specific ancestral roots or descend from this specific ancestral couple. And so, you know, I always say um, 
at the very least, we can give a specific population group. And I don't mean Latin American versus African American versus Caucasian. I mean, and it's funny because I often use this example, um, somebody with deep Mennonite roots in Pennsylvania that go back generations. Anybody who doesn't have that is not your person. And so the real power of investigative genetic genealogy is its ability to eliminate people from being under consideration, which is another reason that it should be used early in a case now that it's available, because we can, I think, eventually cut down on wrongful convictions because we can keep the focus off the innocent from the very beginning. That's definitely huge. And kind of going back to one of the things that you mentioned that I think is interesting, you mentioned all of your efforts, um, you know, in Utah to get more legislation and also your nonprofit to really put an accreditation process in place to codify what it means to be part of investigative genealogy. Have you seen people in this field try to take advantage of this new technology or what is the reason behind those efforts? Yes, not everybody is following the rules as they should. So terms of service are not legal, legally enforceable, meaning that you don't necessarily have to follow a company's terms of service. Now, if they find out that you are breaking their terms of service, they can bar you from using their services. But it is physically possible to upload a DNA sample against terms of service, say at GEDmatch, and to compare against the whole database. And so I just want to tighten that up a bit to make it so Uh, people absolutely cannot do that. She says some of the databases they do have permission to use have special law enforcement portals where investigators have to pay. She says if someone wasn't using that portal, then they not only avoid paying the fee, but can also have access to a pool of people that may not have opted into allowing law enforcement to access their information. And so that is concerning to me because people have the right to decide how their DNA is used unless you're a violent criminal. And so I, you know, I don't want people to think that they have opted out and yet still end up in that comparison pool. And so, like I said, I, you know, I don't think it's widespread. I think sometimes when it happens, it's just out of not knowing better. Um, Nobody has taught that agency or that person that they have to go through the law enforcement portal. But if we are able to educate people more, including codifying that into law, then it's much less likely to happen. Absolutely. Definitely a good point. From your perspective, how willing are law enforcement agencies to use this new technology? Well, it all started with the Golden State Killer suspect arrest in April 2018, which I wasn't involved in that case, but that's really what made this idea of using genetic genealogy for law enforcement purposes burst onto the scene. And it received international coverage and continual coverage for quite a while. So a lot of law enforcement agencies at that point immediately jumped on board and were excited to embrace this new technology, but not all. There were many that held back, not sure whether it was something they should do and not knowing enough about it to feel comfortable using it. So we've seen over the last four and a half years, uh, many agencies becoming comfortable with the idea. Oftentimes it takes having a case solved in their jurisdiction or one next, next door for them to really feel comfortable with it and to understand its use. So we're constantly trying to educate law enforcement across the country, including medical examiners, 
because it's such a powerful tool for uh, Jane and John Doe cases. We've got tens of thousands of unidentified deceased people in this country that need to be identified. Um, but, you know, there are still some agencies that are hesitant to use it. We have seen many of these cases work their way through the courts. One of the very first ones was in Christy Merak's case. Um, we have seen over 50 convictions and cases that we have worked as a team where we've identified or helped law enforcement identify the perpetrator um, through investigative genetic genealogy. So it's really already starting to be tested in court, I think, to a much greater degree, degree than most people realize. As this technology continues to develop, where do you see this technology going in the future? I do think we will see more restrictions, more laws around the use of investigative genetic genealogy. And people might be surprised that I think that's a good thing. Sounds like, you know, I'm working against my own best interests, but that's not true because this tool is incredibly powerful and it needs to be used in the right way. And eventually we will see thousands of violent criminals taken off the streets. We will see a reduction in repeat offenders and in serial killers. I don't think that there needs to be cold cases anymore if there's DNA left behind at that crime scene that still exists. It's virtually impossible not to leave your DNA behind if you perpetrate a very intimate violent crime like the ones we are using investigative genetic genealogy for. And that means that we will identify you. And so as time goes on, I think we can have a significant impact on public safety. I think we can greatly reduce the existence of serial killers or serial, serial rapists to the point where we may be able to eliminate them completely. And we may be able to eliminate cold cases and those types of crimes as long as there is DNA existing. Eliminate cold cases and serial offenders. It's a bold statement, but one CC Moore says could be a possibility one day. Regardless of if you agree, as we've seen, it has been working. So I think you know, it, the future is very bright for this tool, for public safety, for law enforcement, efficient investigations. I've worked with so many detectives that have had a case of their career that has followed them for years or decades and into retirement. That is the one case they're just hoping will be solved before they retire or die. And I think that we will be able to resolve those cases. Law enforcement carries these with them as well. And they also really need answers in addition, of course, to the families and the surviving victims. And sometimes the whole community is affected by these types of crimes, just like we saw in the Christine Mirac and the Lindy Sue Beekler cases. So there's a lot of good that can be done with this tool as long as it's used responsibly, ethically and appropriately. But in order to accomplish that goal, is there a need for way more people to put their DNA onto these sites? Yes, I'm glad you asked that. The more people that are willing to actively support our effort, efforts, the more quickly we can identify violent criminals, get them off the streets, identify Jane and John Doe's and get answers to their families. If you have a loved one that's missing, even if it happened decades ago, in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, she says make sure they're reported missing. She says sometimes they identify people who aren't in digital databases. What does it mean to you to be able to use this process to help solve these cold cases? Well, when I started developing the techniques 
to help people find their biological family, that was life-changing for a lot of people. There are millions of people in our country who don't know who one or both biological parents are. And so to me, that was incredibly fulfilling. And I was very happy just doing that. But I did see very early on the potential for the application to law enforcement. I worked with uh, some amnesiacs, people who thought or were kidnapped as children. And that really showed me the overlap with law enforcement cases. And so now that I'm able to help provide answers to families and sometimes justice, uh, you know, I couldn't ask for a more meaningful career. And then last question, for some of these cases that are 30 or more years old, why is it so important to solve them? For all of these cold cases, there are still family members waiting for answers. Even if the parents have passed away, their siblings, there are children of the victims in some cases, grandchildren, nieces and nephews, who have carried this burden for years or decades. And even though we can't always provide justice because the perpetrators are dead in a significant number of these old cases. Just providing answers, you can see this burden lift off their shoulders. In Christy Mirak's case, when her mother died, her brother really took on the burden of trying to get justice for Christy. And it's been such a heavy burden for him, I think I can say that. And when they finally do get answers, resolution and even justice, it's like they can finally start the healing process. That's also true with the unidentified remains cases. People carry these burdens, these heavy, heavy burdens, and they need answers. So I think that part of it is important, but I also think justice for justice sake is important. People need to pay for what they've done, answer for what they've done. And if they've passed away, um, I think they still need to be um, revealed for what they've done and for their true nature. Truth is powerful. And I think, you know, truth is something that in itself is worth pursuing. Truth is powerful. As I cover these unsolved cases, I see the same thing Cece Moore does. Families and loved ones left behind are desperate for answers, hoping for closure and some sort of resolution for better or for worse. It's the who did it and why. But with new technology, hopefully more families can learn the truth. As always, if you know anything about any of the cases I cover, please reach out or tell law enforcement. Any information, no matter how small, can be helpful. My email is jessicabab at sbgtv.com or reach out to our newsroom at news at cbs21.com. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you next time. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. 
as an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.